2: Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals, including a forthcoming course on the future of food. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu.
3: 4.6 billion.
2: The Earth forms.
3: Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous Tertiary. 65 million.
2: Meteor kills the dinosaurs.
3: 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000.
2: Agricultural. 250. Revolution. Industrial
3: Revolution. 60 Split Great animals. acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm your host, Mike Osborne. This week, we're talking about how to feed a warming world. By 2050, there will be more than 9 billion people on the planet. At the same time, climate change is ramping up. So at the global level, we have a ginormous task on our hands. So what steps are we taking to prepare for the looming challenge? On today's show, we have two stories that explore this question. The first is about doomsday, but it's a happy story. Here's producer Leslie Chang.
2: Okay, let's talk worst-case scenario for a second. What if all the crop seeds we've developed and cultivated over time were to suddenly fail? What if we needed to totally revamp our agricultural system, go back to square one, build up the seeds that support our global food supply? If this were to happen, ideally, we'd have a master stash somewhere that houses all of the seeds and seed varietals. Luckily, we do. And it's probably in the last place you would expect
4: it. Midway between the northernmost coast of Norway and the North Pole.
2: That was Ola Vestingen. He's the coordinator of operation and management for the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in Norway. It's the largest storage facility for crop seeds in the world. Here's how Ola describes the setting.
4: Inside a mountain, a mountain that's actually frozen, there's permafrost there, Uh, the whole mountain is frozen. So you walk in a tunnel uh, 120 meters uh, inside the mountain, and in there there's a large hole, and from that hole there are three three frozen doors into the actual uh, seed vault chambers.
2: Across the world, there are around 1,750 seed banks, and their basic purpose is to save crop seeds. Ever since the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago, humans have been constantly tinkering with families of edible plants. We breed, crossbreed, and select genetic traits in order to achieve the ever-perfect varietal. But each crop family only has so many genes, and over time, genetic diversity can be bred out or simply lost.
4: Genetic erosion, yeah, that's the term we use to describe what's happening when all varieties and wild relatives of the crops get lost. Their alarm really sounded on what's called genetic erosion on the 60s. There's been quite some efforts globally to conserve these crop varieties.
2: The Svalbard Seed Vault was conceived as the ultimate repository for seeds across the globe. It's kind of like the Swiss bank of seed banks. In popular culture, it's come to be known as the Doomsday Vault. But Ola told us that's really not how they think of it on the ground.
4: Because that name, the Doomsday Vault, is not—it um, does not give the right impression of what, what the Seed Vault is all about. The mission of the Seed Vault is to function as a safety net for the global conservation system for crop diversity.
2: The operation of Svalbard is straightforward and simple.
4: We have an open invitation to to all gene banks in the world um, on our webpage saying that we are a free or charge uh, safety duplication site that they might use. We basically function like uh, a bank box. If you deposit your jewelry, if you have that in a bank box, it's only you that can access it.
2: If Svalbard is like a library, then it has both the popular bestsellers and the more obscure special collections. Seed samples remain in black boxes, and no one can access them except for their depositor. Maybe this sounds like a pretty cut-and-dry process, but there is some level of urgency to collecting and cataloging the crop seeds of the world, because it's surprisingly easy for crop diversity to be lost forever.
4: The situation is that when agriculture goes from a more traditional form into a more formalized modernized form, as it has done in most developed countries, a lot of these old varieties or land raises of crops go out of use. That something goes out of use doesn't necessarily mean that it gets lost, but uh, unless it's conserved in gene banks, ex situ, out of the field, or maintained on the side in situ by farmers, it will get lost.
2: A number of recent studies show that diets around the world are becoming increasingly homogenous. Globally, humanity is converging on fewer and fewer varietals. This means that local crops that were important as recently as 50 years ago are at risk for going extinct. Seeds stored at Svalbard might have purpose in the future that we can't fully imagine today.
4: Now Svalbard is only about conservation, but what we are backing up is really those repositories of the genetic diversity that provide those options to adapt to to future unknowns and to future new climates.
2: Threats to global crop diversity are both natural and man-made. An example that illustrates just how challenging this task can be is Syria. Despite the ongoing civil war, researchers at the seed bank there continue to ship samples to Svalbard.
4: There lays one of the most important gene banks really for humankind. That's right in the area where agriculture originated in this part of the world, at least in the Fertile Crescent, and they conserve incredible diversity of such crops like barley, chickpea, lentils, and these crops that come from this area. Now this this gene bank is is under siege or it's in that area where it's obviously very vulnerable, but people in that gene bank are still working, and they are still working with us. The case that really illustrates the, the purpose of Svalbard.
2: The campaign to safeguard humanity's agricultural history is ongoing. There are currently over 850,000 different types of seeds stored at Svalbard, and they have the capacity to store up to four and a half million.
4: So every time I enter that hole where the seeds are stored, I'm full of respect. I don't think there's any room in the world that is so biologically diverse. It is really fantastic.
3: Climate change almost certainly threatens our food supply. Floods, droughts, and other extreme weather events affect the predictability of global food production. But when we zoom in a little closer to look at the nuances of how plants will respond to high CO2 levels, sometimes we find risks that we never would have imagined. Our producer, Miles Traer, brings us this piece.
1: Today, one out of seven people in the world go to sleep hungry every night. Food security is already a major problem. As global population continues to rise, how on earth are we going to feed everyone in the future?
0: So we're looking at, say, needing to increase food production by 70% by 2050 to meet the needs of the world.
1: That's Roz Gletto, professor of biological sciences at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia.
0: I run the core science program there, and I do research on the effect of climate change on food security.
1: Feeding the world is a challenge even without climate change. But increasing environmental variability adds another layer of complexity. Food security is about making sure there's enough food to go around and that people have the ability to purchase what they need. But Roz is particularly focused on an aspect of food security that's often overlooked. The question of nutrition. It's not just about how much food we have, but are people getting the nutrients they need? And how might the nutritional value of plants change with rising CO2? One crop Raz studies is cassava.
0: A billion people eat cassava every day. And about 40% of sub-Saharan Africa live on cassava as their staple.
1: Cassava is already a major food staple worldwide, up there with rice and corn. And Roz thinks that cassava has some real advantages for improving food security as we enter a warmer future.
0: Cassava is an amazing crop. You could call it a climate-change-ready crop. So it grows incredibly well under drought conditions. It does really well under heat conditions.
1: Not only is cassava built to tolerate the climate variability we can expect in the future, but like most other plants, it responds favorably to a high CO2 atmosphere. Plants breathe CO2 like we breathe oxygen, so more CO2 makes photosynthesis more efficient and gives plants extra energy to grow. In some cases, this means higher crop yields.
0: So high CO2 in cassava will lead to higher yields, almost certainly. We have, Experimentally, we've shown huge increases in tuber growth, which the tuber is the part that people eat uh, under elevated carbon dioxide. Cassava is actually a fantastic crop for food security from that point of view in terms of amount of calories that you can produce on marginal lands with uncertain climate. I think that that's a really good future for it.
1: So in many ways, cassava offers huge advantages for food security as CO2 levels increase and climates change. But there is one major cause for concern.
0: It's going to be a really important source of calories. It is now and it will continue to do so. But the issue is is that it makes cyanide.
1: Cyanide is a serious food security issue, given that a billion people rely on cassava. Many plants we eat actually produce a small amount of cyanide. Apple seeds, bitter cherries, bitter almonds. The human body can safely process a limited amount of cyanide. And communities that have cultivated cassava for generations know how to prepare it in a way that removes most of the poison.
0: Cassava produces cyanide in all parts of the plant, and particularly in the peel of the tuber. So the tubers look a bit like a sweet potato, but you really need to peel that. That can be like 900 ppm cyanide. And there are some excellent ways, very simple ways of processing that can reduce the cyanide by 95% and render it completely safe. And in some countries, they already do this extremely well. But in certain parts of Africa, particularly Mozambique, Congo and Tanzania, they don't.
1: As cassava becomes an increasingly important food staple, Ros and others fear that severe cyanide poisoning may become more prevalent, especially if people don't know how to detoxify the plant.
0: If you just consume long-term chronic lower amounts, you'll get a thing called tropical ataxia, which is like shakes. But if you consume a fair bit of it in quite a short space of time, particularly for people who are growing fast, like children or pregnant women, there's a disease called Konzo, which superficially would look a bit like polio. It's a permanent paralysis of the lower limbs.
1: There's one more component to the cassava story, and that's protein. Protein boosts our body's ability to combat the effects of cyanide, but cassava produces less protein when grown in elevated CO2 conditions. What this means is that yields of cassava may improve under high CO2, but the nutritional value declines. As a result, people become even more susceptible to cyanide poisoning. So, given the importance of cassava for food security in the developing world, and given the risks of cyanide poisoning, what solutions make the most sense? So
0: often what we think is we're going to have some kind of fancy solution like, you know, a genetically modified cassava or some kind sort of complex solution. Some people have proposed that we develop a non-cyanide producing cassava. There's a number of issues with that. We've talked to local farmers in, in Mozambique about that. And all the farmers we spoke to said, no, we we're not interested in that. We just want to have better processing.
1: So according to Roz, the solutions really lie within human systems. Understanding the biology of cassava only gets us so far. Many of the people who will increasingly depend on cassava don't yet have the necessary knowledge for how to deal with the risks. Fundamentally, this is a problem of education and social equality.
0: The number one issue is to reduce poverty. If people can improve their diet, particularly include more fish in their diet, which is high in sulfur-based amino acids, that's very important for detoxifying cyanide. If you can have a greater diversity of food, more vegetables, that will improve it. Really, I think if we can just understand the environmental responses and what the nutritional response is of the plant, there are often quite simple solutions such as processing food, education, knowledge, governance, and above all, reducing poverty. These things can go a long way to improving resilience to climate change.
1: Our food systems will inevitably have to adapt to climate change. Nature is going to respond in complex but scientifically understandable ways. At some point, the onus is on us to create societies and human systems that are resilient to our changing world.
3: That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Next time on the podcast... If we start deploying a solar geoengineering scheme at the same time that we're building additional power plants that use the sky as a waste dump, then that solar geoengineering scheme can just be seen as facilitating continued expansion of the fossil fuel industry.
1: In 21 out of 21 studies, we saw a positive relationship between temperature and conflict. So the chance of that happening by chance... Uh, is less than one in a million. So this thing is real. And to us, the consistency across studies was, was incredibly surprising.
3: Our show is produced by Leslie Chang, Miles Trayer, and me, Mike Osborne. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is jenanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter, at genanthropocene. If you enjoy our show, leave us a comment on iTunes, give us a rating, and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. So pleased. I'm going mean, to that. Nah, nah, no. That's fine. We'd be...
2: Oh, so many times I wish I had a gif of your face. <laughs> <laughs> and that's definitely one of them. <laughs> All
3: right. All right.